1: banking services provided by green dot bank member fdic only funds and envelopes earn apy apy can change at any time
2: from silicon valley to wall street the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage but what will the next phase of ai adoption look like which companies from big tech to startups will dominate and where do the risks and unintended consequences lie i'm emily chang
3: This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio.
4: I wasn't sure that this day would ever come, and uh, I just feel so
1: grateful that the jury believed us and sent a strong message that perpetrators of sexual abuse and exploitation will be held accountable no matter how much power and privilege that they have.
2: That was Annie Farmer a little more than a week ago after a jury found Ghislaine Maxwell guilty of engaging in a 10-year sex trafficking scheme with Jeffrey Epstein. But now the verdict that was hailed as long-delayed justice for the victims is in jeopardy. In newspaper interviews, a juror said that during the jury deliberations, he revealed that he'd been the victim of sexual abuse as a child and that his story helped sway other jurors who questioned the credibility of some of Maxwell's accusers. Then a second juror made a similar disclosure. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Jessica Rolfe, a professor at Cardozo Law School. Jessica, explain why the revelations by these jurors are leading the defense to ask for a new trial. A defendant is entitled to a trial by a jury that is
4: fair and
2: impartial. That is a
4: constitutional guarantee. A defendant is not entitled to a perfect trial, but at a minimum to a trial by a jury that will decide the case based on the evidence presented in court and not influenced by any bias. And so the problem that has been raised by these recent revelations by two jurors is the concern that they may have harbored a bias against Maxwell based on their own prior experiences as victims of sexual abuse. And so what the court is going to be trying to determine is whether essentially these jurors should not have been seated because of those prior experiences.
2: Clearly, the questionnaire that the jurors had to fill out asks, have you or a friend or a family member ever been the victim of sexual harassment, sexual abuse, or sexual assault? So was there misrepresentation here by either juror? Well, there are a couple of things we still don't know. So
4: we don't know how he answered that question on his questionnaire because it's under seal. So the lawyers may know, but the general public doesn't know yet how, in fact, he answered that question. It's possible that he answered the question accurately and did disclose that he had prior experience of abuse and that the lawyers either didn't catch it or did failed to follow up on it, either deliberately or inadvertently. Unlikely that they would have deliberately failed to follow up on it. But it is possible that they missed his answer. So the first order of business, I imagine, for the parties right now is going to be finding his questionnaire and seeing how, in fact, he answered it. And it seems unlikely that he answered it in a way that disclosed the abuse, because if he had it is likely that the attorneys would have asked follow-up questions about it. And according to the reporting, the transcript of the voir dire does not reveal any follow-up questioning of this particular juror on that issue. So that suggests that he did not disclose it on his questionnaire or that he did disclose it, but the lawyers didn't catch it. But the first order of business is going to be determining how he answered that question on the questionnaire. And that's important for the next step of the inquiry because the court is going to inquire into his possible motive for not disclosing it, assuming for present purposes that he did not disclose it. If the court were to determine that he did not disclose it deliberately in order to get on the jury, then that would be more indicative of bias than if he, as he has Suggested perhaps inadvertently failed to disclose it because he was rushing through the questionnaire. And there are cases where courts have talked about the significance of a juror's motivations for failing to disclose information that seems relevant to determining bias. Because if it seems that the juror was determined or trying to get onto the jury, that is often indicative in the court's view of harboring some bias and wanting to get on to the jury in order to render a verdict against the defendant.
2: Will the judge look into what happened in the jury room? That's one of the more interesting aspects of this new turn
4: in the case, which is that although the jurors have suggested in their accounts to the media that they brought their experiences into the jury room with them and used them to persuade other jurors who may have been initially skeptical of the victim's witness's credibility. The judge is not going to consider testimony or other evidence about the jury deliberations in making her decision about whether or not to grant a new trial. That's because there's a federal rule of evidence that expressly prohibits a judge from considering testimony or an affidavit from a juror about conduct or statements that occurred during the jury's deliberation. That's a rule uh, of longstanding precedent, um, and it's designed to protect the privacy of jury deliberations. The concern is that if jurors are not assured of the privacy of their deliberations, that they will be less candid courts have been willing to accept the fact that this rule may result in occasional injustice, but they have said that they do not think that the jury system could survive efforts to perfect it in this regard. There are a few narrow exceptions to that rule. For example, if a juror were to come forward and say that a juror was offered a bribe or was threatened to influence their verdict, the court would hear testimony from a juror about that. The court also would hear testimony from jurors about their having been exposed to extraneous uh, extrajudicial uh, publicity, for example, a newspaper account about the case. But other than those narrow exceptions, which involve extraneous external information being brought to bear on the jury, uh, the court will not hear that kind of information from the jurors. The last exception is one that the U.S. Supreme Court carved out in recent years to say that if there is significant evidence of racial animus, affecting the jury's deliberations that the court a court should hear that kind of evidence um, from a juror but none of those exceptions would apply in this case.
2: So the defense argues that the new trial should be granted without any kind of evidentiary hearing because there's enough on the record already with what the juror said. But does it seem likely that the judge will hold a hearing? It seems unlikely to me that the court will decide this motion. Uh, without some
4: further inquiry. I think that the court is likely to hear from one or both jurors who have come forward so far and to probe their reasons uh, for not disclosing this information, if, in fact, it turns out that they did not disclose it on their juror questionnaires. Because, again, what the court is going to be trying to determine is whether the jurors harbored any kind of bias that would have provided Uh, cause for them to have been excused um, from the jury uh, during the voir dire process.
2: The prosecution requested that the juror be given a court-appointed attorney. Does that indicate that there could be possible criminal perjury charges?
4: I wouldn't read that into the government's request uh, for the court to appoint an attorney. I think that the government was uh, trying to uh, streamline um, the process uh, for moving forward, um, and to uh, and to ask the court to exercise supervisory authority, essentially over the process moving forward. Having an attorney appointed to represent the juror um, helps that process. Um, what it also does, incidentally, is now require any attorney. The wishes to communicate with that juror, whether it's the prosecutors um, or the defense attorneys, to go through that attorney, because lawyers are bound by rules of professional conduct uh, that require that if they know a, an individual is represented by an attorney in a matter, that they must contact that individual through their attorney.
2: What kind of factors would the judge consider Will she consider the strength of the evidence against Maxwell? Will she consider having to put the four victims who testified through another trial? Well, motions for a new trial are disfavored
4: precisely because of the interest and in finality in judgments once they've been rendered. And those interests include not having to put victims and witnesses through another trial. But that said, the legal determination that the court will need to make is whether or not the record establishes that these uh, jurors um, were sufficiently unbiased um, that they should were, were appropriately seated as jurors in this case. So I think the court is likely to hear from these jurors um, about their reasons for not disclosing this information um, if, in fact, um, they fail to disclose it and also um, their own views about the case um, when they went into the case. Um, And there are precedents for courts making such inquiries of of jurors um, to inquire into why they failed to make disclosures um, and what the jurors' responses reveal about their biases. So for example, there was a case, a death penalty case in Massachusetts tried a number of years ago where it emerged after the defendant was sentenced to death, that one of the jurors failed to disclose that she herself had been the victim of a horrific violent crime, even though all potential jurors were asked about that. And when she was questioned about it in a subsequent post-trial hearing, she said that it was so traumatic for her to talk about that experience that she simply chose not to, because it was so shameful and difficult for her to discuss that. And so even though the court found in that case that she harbored no specific bias toward that defendant, the court found that her reason for not disclosing it, namely that it was so traumatic for her to discuss those experiences, um, was the kind of information that would have caused the court to excuse her for cause. um, Initially, had the court known about it, because it was clearly still so raw and emotional for that juror, such that the court would have been concerned about the juror's ability to decide the present case um, fairly and based solely on the evidence. And so I think that the judge, if the court makes an inquiry of these jurors, is gonna to wanna to know a bit about their own experience with abuse, the sort of the nature and circumstances of it. Uh, the court will also inquire again about why they failed to disclose it if they did. Um, and whether or not taking all the facts and circumstances together, including the witness's demeanor at any such hearing, whether the court concludes that the jurors ultimately harbored some bias toward Maxwell and wanted to get on this jury, or if there was anything about their own experiences with abuse that would have caused them to be unable to be fair and impartial in this case.
2: Was the conviction in that case, in the death penalty case, reversed?
4: Yes. The, it, the defendants had pled guilty. To the crime, the only thing put before the jury in that case was whether the defendant should be sentenced to death, um, and the court did set aside um, that death sentence on account of the jurors' partiality.
2: A lot of experts are saying that this revelation, it, this is so serious that it's likely that the judge is going to reverse Maxwell's conviction. Do you agree with that?
4: I think it's too soon to predict. Um, How the court will rule here, I think we need to take things one step at a time. And as I said a moment ago, the first order of business is to find those juror questionnaires and to see what the jurors said, and then to follow up with the jurors. um, I think it's very hard to say that this is a per se case for reversal, even if the jurors did not disclose this information. I think we're several steps away from the court having all the information it needs uh, to make a decision.
2: Does this say something about those lengthy questionnaires that are sent out to pools of jurors? This juror said, he you know, he just went through it really quickly. And then they based their questions on whether or not I think the judge individually questioned each juror who said they were the victim of sex abuse. I can understand a juror just going really fast through question after question after question. I wonder how useful they really are.
4: So it's an interesting question about whether at a certain point there are diminishing returns to a lengthy jury questionnaire and whether, in fact, it can be uh, uh, counterproductive uh, to have so many questions that there is an increased risk that the jurors will not pay attention to the most significant questions. Um, In this particular case, whether a potential juror had a personal experience or whether somebody close to them had an experience with sexual abuse, seems to be very important information that the parties would want to find out um, about each potential juror. And so without having looked um, at all of the other questions carefully to decide what might have been discarded, um, I do think as a general matter, it is perhaps a good reminder um, that sometimes less is more.
2: If, 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 if the judge does reverse the conviction, Is there any doubt that the prosecutors will have to retry her given the seriousness of the allegations and the notoriety of the case?
4: The prosecutors will have to make that evaluation in light of a number of considerations. Um, But I would be very surprised if they would not retry her um, given the seriousness uh, of the charges here. But that said, uh, We are way, way, way too early, I think, um, to be making predictions about what's going to happen.
2: Thanks, Jessica. That's Professor Jessica Roth of Cardozo Law School.
1: You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers.
5: Dot com.
2: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. The U.S. Supreme Court struggled with the question of whether immigrants who entered the country illegally and have sought to avoid deportation on humanitarian grounds must be given a bond hearing after being in detention for six months. The justices are confronting how to handle a precedent that lower courts have interpreted to require those bond hearings for certain immigrants after six months' detention. Joining me is Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight. Leon, how long can immigrants who entered the country illegally be kept in detention without a bond hearing?
3: So this depends, Jules, because there are many different contexts in which foreign nationals are detained. And so the very first case, that's the seminal case that discussed this issue, is a case called Zavidas, where it was a Lithuanian person who had had an order of removal to Lithuania. But at the time that he was born, he was born in the Soviet Union. He was not born, there was no Lithuania at that time anymore. And so when it came time to deport him back to Lithuania, Lithuania said, I don't know this person. This is a Soviet Union citizen, and the Soviet Union doesn't exist anymore, so we're not taking them. And so then the U.S. government was was faced with two equally lousy scenarios. Detain Zavidas for the rest of his life or let him out. And so the court was presented with that case in the 90s. And the court said, even though the statute doesn't ever use either 180 days or six months, it doesn't have any of that in it. It said, if it's not significantly likely that you will be removed in the foreseeable future. If you've already been detained six months, we're going to let you have a bond hearing. We're going to get you a chance to be released because we're not going to keep you in detention forever. So that's what's called a post removal case. In the meantime, after that was decided, people then asked, well, what about not post removal, but if you're detained in the middle of your proceeding? So we haven't decided whether to deport you or not, but you're detained and these proceedings are taking too long. So people said that should be six months as well. And A lot of the lower courts agreed, but by the time this got to the Supreme Court in the Trump administration and the composition of the courts had changed, the courts disagreed and said, We're not going to set a presumptive time period for people who are going through proceedings. Whatever long it takes, it takes. And if it takes way, 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 way too long, you can make what's called an individual as applied challenge saying, Hey, I've been detained two years, three years, and my proceedings are going nowhere, let me out. So that's the difference between a person who finished their proceedings and a person who's in the middle of their proceedings. So today's cases were tricky because they are people who are in the middle of their proceedings. But because of an earlier Supreme Court case from last year, which said that these people are not considered to be in detention during their proceedings but are considered to be post-removal detention because these are people who have already been deported and have come back into the United States and we're trying to deport them again. But they're saying, no, 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 no. Something happened in the middle of the time from when you deported me to when I came back that it would be very dangerous for me for you to deport me. So please, please, please don't do it. For those people, because the post-removal case is six months, Should the court make these people also have a six-month detention period? Because you can't interpret the same statute differently for two different kinds of people. So that's the argument they're making.
2: And what's the federal government's position?
3: The federal government is saying, yes, if you have a pointy-headed, bureaucratic, you have to interpret the same statute the same way for everybody, yes, then it would be six months. But then these people who've been deported and who are returning actually will get better treatment than people who are coming for the first time and are being detained because the courts have decided that those people don't get a six-month detention period. And these aren't like the Zavodas people where we know we can't support them ever because there is no uh, – Lithuania is not going to accept them and no other country is going to accept them. These people can be deported, but we just have to finish their proceeding. And so that's the obstacle to deportation. It isn't that no country will take them. And so that's the argument the government was making here. And the Supreme Court was very gingerly trying to figure all of this out during your argument and trying to understand all these different permutations. And you could tell they didn't have it exactly all understood by their questioning.
2: What were the main concerns you heard the justices discuss?
3: So I think the main concerns from the what you would call the more progressive justices is they were really focused on the practical. How long is it going to take for this human being and others like them to have their hearing? And if it's going to take one year, two years, three years, four years, why should they be allowed to be in detention all of this time? And when would be the time that would be appropriate? And so this is where the counsel for the advocates were saying okay well no that's why it should be six months and after six months you should get a right to uh, have bond and be bonded out if you're not a danger to society and if you're not a flight risk and the government was saying "No, no 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 you can't create a six month time frame for this because this isn't something where we know that the person is never going to be deported. In fact, most of these people are going to be deported. And if we can keep them detained, we can finish these cases more quickly because these cases would go in what's called the detained docket, which is a faster immigration court docket than the non-detained docket. So that these time periods are hard to analyze because the reason we don't have these folks in the detained docket is because we don't know if we can detain them. But once you give us authority to do this, we will put them into detain docket and their cases will go much faster. So that's from the progressive wing. That was their concern is they seem to say, look, we wanna apply the six month standard if you're not gonna give us some guarantees about how long this is gonna take, because this could take forever and it's not fair to keep people detained for so long just for an immigration thing, they didn't commit any crime of any kind. So that's number one. On the conservative side, they seem to have a bunch of different possibilities. Number one might be actually overruling the Zavadas case in the first place, which the government, the Biden administration doesn't want. This would be a huge nightmare for the Biden administration if by defending this particular kind of detention, you ended up with actually overruling Zavadas which would then allow the government to indefinitely detain anybody, even people it knew it couldn't deport. So that's a possibility. And that's out there as a, as a possibility. I don't know if the court will go that far. Also, Justice Coney Barrett seemed to have like a compromise position she was trying to carve out, which is where I think if you said, Leon, you have to come up with a prediction, I think it could end up here, which is where the court would say, look, we're not going to say six months, but come to us with individual claims if you think that there's an undue delay and we will do this on a case-by-case basis. And then the court was trying to figure out criteria of what it could use for such an analysis, but it didn't really get there. But I could see the court over the next six months trying to hammer out something like that, where it could provide guidance on what you could do on a case-by-case basis, but not give a six-month presumption.
2: Will that burden the lower courts, the immigration
3: courts? Correct. That will make many, many, many individual cases have to get filed, as opposed to having a bright line rule where after six months, the government knows it has to release people who are not flight risks and who are not dangerous. And so all of those people will need to have access to counsel and will need to then be able to file a, a lawsuit, which means they'll either have to have. $400 or somebody else will have to put up that money or they'll have to file what's called an informal paupers, which is a very long convoluted process to convince the court that you don't have any money. So all of that will have to be done. And then you'll have to go through at least 90 to 120 days of additional litigation while you're in detention for you to get out and have a bond hearing. So that would be the outcome of a as applied standard as opposed to setting a bright line of, look, after six months, you have to let people out. But, I mean, either of those are possibilities, and there's the remote possibility. They may just say nobody anymore gets a six-month presumption, not even the original people who were people you just couldn't deport because no country would take them. None of them will get a six-month presumption. So we'll see. All three of those possibilities are still alive.
2: But the third would mean that they would overrule one of their precedents
3: Zavada. correct
2: which is something that is going to come up a couple of times this term or at least in the abortion cases and one wonders if they want to be overruling precedent so frequently
3: correct i mean it would be a monumental thing to overturn zavidas but to the extent that this set of justices says look i don't see how we can keep zavidas when the entire point of zavidas is that it puts a six-month standard where literally if you put a control F search for 180 days or six months, you don't see it anywhere in the statute. How can we as a conservative textual court keep this decision? So they might say that. Or they might say, look, this would be very dangerous to let the government indefinitely detain people we know can't be deported. Are we really going to give immigrants a life sentence in jail? for just the fact that a government won't take them back. That seems kind of harsh. And so the question is then, what can we do? Can we create some other carve out that differentiates the kinds of cases where a person can't be deported because a country won't take them and the kinds of cases where a person can't be deported because even though we've deported them already, they've come back and are in the middle of a hearing to decide if they get this special relief just for a very narrow thing that they're going to be tortured if they go back to the country where we deported them to because of something that happened in the meantime after we deported them. And so they might make that carve-out and say that that carve-out matters, which would be odd because usually a statute means the same thing for everybody. But they may say, no, it doesn't, which would be kind of spooky, Or they may say, it does mean this for everybody, but nevertheless, we're we're just going to say you still have to have an as-applied talent for every single person. So all of these things are possible, and we'll just have to see how they come up with the final answer there.
2: So how many people are we talking about? How many people would this case, the decision in this case, impact?
3: Well, so it could end up being thousands of people, and it also depends from the standpoint of if there is a six-month right, then potentially many more people come back who've been deported, and they try to make these claims knowing that they can get out in six months, as opposed to if people think they're going to be indefinitely detained, perhaps some people don't come back because they say, oh, holy mother, I don't want to go back to America, and if I get caught, I'll be put in detention for three or four years. And so the number could change depending even on what the relief is.
2: So um, do they discuss the class
3: action aspect of this? Right. So there's, there's also statutory language about whether you can get relief on these kinds of cases based on a class case or whether these need to be done on a case-by-case basis. And so in the cases that had to do with pending immigration proceedings, The Supreme Court has said you can't file these as a class. They all need to be done individually. And so that's one of the issues that's going to be determined here is, can you do this as a class because they all have one common legal claim? Or is this going to have to be something where you're going to have to show that the detention was unreasonable given the circumstances in your case, that the government was delaying your case, and that's why you should be let out?
2: The Biden administration has gotten some blowback because of its position in certain immigration issues. It hasn't been as progressive as immigration advocates want. Are they getting criticized for the position in this case where they're just standing in the, the shoes of the Trump administration?
3: I think in general, the advocates are very disappointed. And this has been a theme with both the Obama administration and the Biden administration. That in both administrations, they have defended the statutory text the way Congress wrote it, which, if you re- appear to read it at face value, says that the detention needs to go on and it needs to be mandatory and it needs to be for the length of the proceedings. That's the way Congress wrote those statutes. Now, the question is, are, is that fair? Does that make any sense? Is it humane? All of those are logical questions. but both the Obama administration and the Biden administration both made the calculation that at the end, the statute is written the way it's written. And unless we're prepared to say that that statute is unconstitutional, we have to defend it the way it's written. And so neither the Biden administration nor the... Obama administration ever decided to say that these statutes were unconstitutional. And so they defended it. And the advocates have given them quite a lot of flack for doing it. But I mean, once you start saying immigration detention statutes are unconstitutional, then what are you doing? I mean, at that point, that becomes a, a major problem, because what are you supposed to do to control unfettered immigration into the United States? And so this, this is the problem. But You know, to the extent that people want to criticize the Biden administration for a bunch of different things, the one thing you have to say and give them the credit for is look, they are calling balls and strikes on a bunch of things. And this is one example of them where they're not, this is clearly not a politicized Justice Department. And it's a Justice Department that's trying to make its way through reading a statute the way it would do it, regardless of who the president
2: is. Thanks, Leon. That's Leon Fresco of and Knight. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg.